Hi everyone, this is just a quick introduction from me to let you know that this episode was recorded pretty early at the beginning of lockdown in both the UK and Ireland, uh, along with James in Japan, uh, and it was recorded predominantly on Zoom, so as a result, uh, the sound quality is not perhaps what is ideal or what you've been used to in previous episodes, so apologies in advance for that but it doesn't make the discussion any less fascinating. So we hope you enjoy this really interesting discussion with Tony Higgins and Mike Peden, collectors extraordinaire, Japanese jazz aficionados, and all-round good guys. Okay, let's get, let's get started. So it's 1.35, cool. Okay. So welcome to Tokyo Jazz Joint. It's a special episode for us this week because we've got, for the first time on the podcast, a couple of guests. Um, in, in a way, these two guys have um, sort of paved the way for us because they proved through some of their fantastic Japanese jazz compilations that people are interested in sitting about listening uh, to music chosen by two old blokes. And um, just like <laughs> them, uh, we are two old blokes who sit about and talk about uh, Japanese jazz bars. And there seems to be an audience for that based on all the listeners we've had so far. So, I mean, first of all, I should probably say thank you to uh, Tony Higgins and Mike Peden. Tony, are you there? Hello. And Mike? Yeah. Good, good. And James, how are you doing today? Feeling very well, very well. It's been a nice warm day here in Yokohama. So, cool. well, well drunk up. Good stuff. <laughs> I would expect nothing less. I mean, you know, if you have been listening to the podcast, you'll be getting a general feel now for the dynamic and, uh, you know, what James's activities tend to be, not only when we're out in the jazz bars, but obviously, apparently, when he's sitting at home as well. So, um, Tony and Mike, great to have you on the, the show. Um, and um, what we want to start, really, we want to talk today principally about the fantastic um, J-Jazz compilations that you put together for BBE Records. If you haven't already got those uh, compilations absolutely after the podcast go and check them out uh, and order a copy for yourself they're fabulous compilations and i thought it'd be a good way to start tony and mike if you just give us a little bit of background on how these compilations initially came about and what was the sort of context for them okay well it was um i, I mean i got to know mike um several years ago he used to run a really good music blog where people would go online and discuss records and share records and things like that. And um, <clears throat> I contacted him and we struck up a correspondence and it became apparent that we both shared interest in all kinds of music, but particularly in uh, jazz made in Japan. And over the years, you know, we sort of would, have you heard this? Have you heard that? And after a while we thought, well, you know, we can't be the only ones who are like, into this, music we knew there was a small group of people out there who, who also appreciated we kind of put together a sort of wish list really and then thought well where do we take it we could do it ourselves maybe but we didn't know where to start and then um i just suggested some record labels that might be interested in doing it and bbe music was one um i live in hastings on the south coast of england and they happen to be in the same town so i contacted them with the idea and said you know 
uh, would you be interested in doing a compilation of, of modern jazz made in Japan? No one had done it before, not in this country anyway. And they were like, yeah, fine. Yeah, you know, Mike and I just threw the tracks in and from our own collections and, and BBE uh, and our men, uh, Ken Hidaka in, in Tokyo, did a lot of the legwork on the ground and pulled it all together. Yeah, we, we've had quite, quite a lot of fun putting them all together. We started, started off, really, as Tony says, we hooked up and um, we used to meet up for drinks, as uh, James probably uh, can uh, empathise with. And uh, so we go out for a few beers and we spend the whole day talking about Japanese jazz. And it's over those pub crawls, we kind of worked out a lot of the track listing and what we, how we were going to put it together. We had a couple of other people involved at the start who put in ideas. But in the end, it just turned out uh, that Tony and I were the complete uh, Japanese jazz nerd, so we carried the project forward. But yeah, it was, it's, it's been quite an experience doing it. Yeah, fantastic. I mean, um, we've, we've obviously got more in common than I realised then, because you mentioned uh, massive nerds there, I think, and also <laughs> a glorified pub crawl. So uh, James, can, James and I can definitely um, empathise with that for sure. So, um, you know, th- there's two of the compilations already. We've got volume one, volume two that have come out over the last couple of years. Uh, and I didn't know either of you guys um, prior to those. So, Tony, maybe if you want to take this one and just um, talk about, you know, what is the connection with these compilations and the Tokyo Jazz Joints project in particular? So there's a bit of a backstory, actually. So um, about 10 years ago, I actually compiled a, uh, an album of Japanese jazz for another label. Um, and I, in the course of doing that, I thought, well, what can I, what can I use for the artwork? And I, I was writing the sleeve notes for the album, and obviously in those sleeve notes, I mentioned the unique phenomenon of jazz kisser in, in, in Japan. And I went online to research a bit more about it and came across tokyojazzjoints.com, the website, and saw these wonderful photographs. And I thought, they look, they look fantastic. I wonder if the uh, guys behind that would be interested in using some of the photographs. But that compilation I worked on never came out, so it kind of didn't go anywhere. So rolling on a few years later, I'm doing the BBE project. So I kind of resurrected the idea and contacted Philip again and it was great you know he was gracious enough uh, to agree again and there we are and I think the the use of the pictures are very evocative that they have a very uh, great atmosphere and texture about them and, I, and they've lent themselves really well to the project um, and they're quite distinctive and I think it's triggered a lot of people to explore this Japanese phenomenon even more and I'm, I'm really happy at how the pictures uh, connect with the music on the on the albums. It worked out well for me certainly I know because I mean uh, I remember actually getting the PDF of the artwork of the original compilation that you mentioned um, and you know some of the photos were in there but it was part of a bigger um, uh, sort of artwork project uh, for the album and you know the strange thing of course is that with the BBE compilations you know thanks to to Lee Bright at BBE and, and Jake Holloway, who did that fantastic design work. You know, the the whole uh, inner and outer sleeves is, is pictures from the project. So I know certainly for me and, and for James as well, it's, it, we're, you know, we're very proud to be to be associated with BBE. They're, they're, they put out fantastic products. And and, and the, the two compilations look amazing. I mean, I've had a real uh, fun time, you know, various places in Europe that I've been. I always have a look in the compilation section for it and I've found it in, in Spain and Portugal. And I was in Berlin uh, and Munich um, back in January there and um, I just sort of completely uh, 
uh, what's the word, press gang, some guy who happened to be lifting it out as I passed. And I uh, got chatting. I said, oh, are you buying that? And, uh, and he said, yes. And I said, oh, I couldn't resist, you know, saying, oh, well, they're actually my photos. Um, whether he actually bought it or not in the end, uh, I don't know. But it's, it's just really nice to see, you know, how, how sort of far that, that project's gotten, obviously. Well, yeah. Philip, I've, I've done the exact same thing here in Japan, though, because um, I've, I've seen several people, whether it's on Twitter or sometimes, you know, at a jazz cafe, the owner will pull it out and I'll just, uh, I'll just go up to them and be like, hey, uh, where did you pick up that album? And, you know, <laughs> and to start a conversation and then, uh, then explain like, oh, okay, well, you know, not only do I know the guys who, who, who selected all the tunes, but, you know, and I go into the photo project. And that's always been a great conversation starter because actually a few people have asked me, Japanese, um, you know, collectors, you know, how did the photo thing come about? And I've had to go through the long story of what Tony just explained about how you guys had that original compilation, you'd been in touch, et cetera, et cetera. So it certainly, it certainly generated some interest um, here in Japan beyond just the great, you know, the music selections, but also how the photos came to be up there. Also talking with the owners, and uh, Mike, you'll remember this from when you were in Japan last time when we went to uh, the old Kisaten Eagle yeah. unit with Goto-san who was very, very intrigued uh, with the project and, and very impressed, actually, because he told me later on that he had no clue at all that people overseas were listening to such records, you know? He only thought it was Japanese people listening to overseas jazz and that nobody really in other countries would be collecting these records. So, you know, you guys have made quite the impression with that, even on real old-timers here. Yeah, that was uh, very interesting. When we went to the Eagle, that he was so fascinated by the whole thing that we that what we'd actually done in Sendai, uh, an elderly guy who had a record shop in uh, Fukuoka for many years, and he's amazed that we are the way we pursue the Japanese thing. It's, it, it's, it's um, for them the British and America thing is far more important than their own homegrown music. And it's like Pulse to Newcastle. I'm going over there. And he's saying to me, can you get me Tubby Hayes or whatever? And I'm saying to him, can you get me Kuchi or whatever? So it is quite incredible the way that the two things sort of mix. Amazing. Sure, sure. Um, so, you know, what's really interesting is, you know, as I said, you know, talking with a lot of Japanese fans about um, the two compilations. And one of the questions that they've always uh, come back to me with is, have these two guys spent a lot of time in Japan? Um, now, Mike, you and I have been able to, to meet here twice. Luckily, Tony, I've not been able to meet you yet in person. Um, but tell us a little bit about, you know, what it was like after all these years of collecting these records to finally come to Japan and hit some of the cafes, bars, live clubs, and record stores. Well, I, I, I mean, I've been to Japan four times. And I, I first went in 2001, but I haven't been back since 2010, nine. And first, the first uh, three times I went, at the time I was working in the music business, I was managing bands and tour managing groups, and I, I went out with uh, musicians to play in, um, in Tokyo and some other places, Blue Note, for example, club in, in Yokohama. And um, at that point, I was just dipping my toe. My knowledge was not nothing like it is now. It's a shame. I would have been if I'd known then what I know now, I would have absolutely cleaned up <laughs> completely. Um, I mean, also the prices were much less then as well. But anyway, and I, you know, I, I went out there and actually my first couple of visits, I was 
looking more in the record shops for kind of European and American kind of jazz and jazz fusion. The, the, the Japanese stuff was, wasn't fully on my radar at that point. Picked up a few things. But my, my third visit, I went back and I was in a shop and I heard some incredible music and it was, uh, it was a Masabumi Kikuchi album. And I thought, wow, it's incredible, you know. I hadn't really heard his early stuff. I'd only heard his later stuff on CBS, stuff that got more better distributed. And it just blew my mind. I thought, this is incredible. And that kind of was my really tipping point, I suppose. Um, and then I had one final uh, trip to Japan. This time I was working in television for the BBC and I was out there making a documentary. And I went out there and I managed to pick up some pieces there as well. But that's the last time I've, I've been physically in, in Japan. And I, I, you know, I'm long overdue a visit. I would love to go back. But while I was out there, I did go to a couple of uh, jazz cases. I've no memory of what they were called. They were like little doorways somewhere in, in, in Shibuya. I could never find them again. That was the weird thing. You'd go out and find a bar. And the next night you'd go out, you couldn't find, you couldn't find out where the hell you'd been the night before. So, um, yeah, I mean, I'm, my overbody memory of one was I went in and I was surprised how small it was. And also the owner was a bit, was a bit moody. Oh, I thought he was moody. Maybe he was just, I don't know, tired. I, you know, and it was, I, I think I was surprised at how serious and reverential it was. And I, I understand it more now, but then I didn't see fully. So it was all new to me. I, I didn't understand the kind of how things worked in there and the culture of it. Um, so your project, Tokyo Jazz Joints, has been a very useful learning tool for me, actually, to know more about the history of them, how they operate, and all of that. But at the time, it was kind of weird for me to go into a place and be very quiet and all of that. And uh, But I was very impressed by the, um, the sound system and all of that. Um, so, yeah, I think um, I, I, would I would love to go back now that I have all this knowledge in my head from what I've gathered so far and sort of look at it all again with fresh eyes i'll forever wonder what those places were now tony i don't know about you james i'm thinking small doorway a uh, bit cramped moody owner impressive sound system it, it doesn't really narrow it down does it it could be pretty much uh, any of 200 places <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. but but it's, it's it's interesting though because you know coming like you said um going into the cafes here um, you're not very likely you're going to hear a lot of Japanese jazz, you know, almost, almost predominantly you're going to be hearing jazz from overseas, um, which is a, which is a topic probably we'll get into on another show someday, why that is. Um, but did it surprise you guys when you came to Japan that, that even though, you know, you, you knew all of the records, you knew this was a jazz loving country. Um, were you surprised at the sheer number of venues though, or did you have any idea about that when you got here? I had no idea until I looked at your, until we looked, until I looked at uh, Tokyo Jazz Joints. I've been going since 2010, I think was my first trip. I've been six times since. I've been to a lot of the um, different pieces around Tokyo and I've managed to travel north up to Sendai and been to a few out there. But the sheer number is quite boggling. Um, I mean, I've, I've been to Prez, uh, the one you spoke about last week, uh, Shurumurun, which was uh, quite an experience because yep. we were bundled out of there quite unceremoniously because the owner wasn't in the mood for a chat, which was quite good fun. But Uncle Tom as well, we've been there. 
um, which uh, Uncle Tom was actually the first one I ever went to. I met some Japanese friends there, and um, I had a copy of uh, Akira Miyazawa's first album with me. And the owner was fascinated and uh, put on four units, funnily enough, which was uh, quite good. But and, and that, again, goes back to the thing about it's very rare that you do hear Japanese jazz in these places. Uh, it's usually American or European stuff. Um, yeah, Sharmon uh, went there with you, James, and uh, the night where the dentist was playing Miles at Carnegie Hall at full volume and <laughs> playing a, a little track uh, excerpt from the track then taking the needle off the record, going back to the beginning of it and blasting that minute breakout again, then back to the beginning. And I must have done it about nine times. But that is quite something, that place. And that, that guy that guy yeah. is a character. And uh, yeah, yeah, I'm really glad that we got to, I'm really glad I got to show you that place because he only opens, you know, three times yeah. a week. Um, but yeah, that was that was definitely a memorable one. And then didn't we meet on your last trip? We went down to Downbeat, right? You did, went to Downbeat. That was great. Yeah, yeah. very, very good. Yeah, with the book of... Um, I hadn't, I've never been actually offered the book of uh, records that are in the place. So we selected, uh, I think we brought it, uh, Max Roach, Members Don't Get Weary of It. And the sound right. there is something else. It sounds fabulous. Really, really good. Um, went to Count in Sendai. Now that was, that's quite hardcore, I think. I think we discussed this before. The old tape seats, all the seats have fallen apart and they've all been pulled together with gaffer tape. And it's not the sort of place for idle chips at. The owner sits there very sternly, doesn't he? And, um, you sit there very reverentially listening to music. It was a fantastic place. And um, then I think the trip before last, I managed to make it to Basie, which was really something else. Met Swifty. Uh, we arrived there uh, probably about midday, and he was uh, drinking beer. And uh, we walked in, and, uh, and then they asked, where was I from? I said, the UK. So immediately Duke Ellington live at uh, Westminster Abbey got slapped on the system. <laughs> and we sat through that with uh, with thumbs up coming across from his table where he was sat. And we, um, as we were sat there, we were looking. I was with a couple of friends, one of whose uh, very good friends with uh, Sadao Watanabe. And we saw Sadao's got his own chair in there, uh, basically. And we were with uh, another Japanese friend who said to Swifty, oh, my friend, we were looking at the chairs and he sees Sadao's chair. Um, and he's a good friend of Sadao's, and that was it. That was the, that was the way in. We, we were straight away over on Swifty's table. We sat there for two hours, two in the back with him. Absolutely fascinated. I had uh, the three, uh, three blind mice T-shirt on, which he, he kept pointing at, saying, oh, "Wow, wow, that's great!" You know. And, uh, and we, we we showed him the um, the J Jazz uh, Volume One, I think, was out at the time. And he wasn't so interested in that. He was more interested in the TVM T-shirt and, and talking about American jazz. And <laughs> pumping um, my friend Doyle, asking him all about Sadao and with Hiroshi in the middle doing the translation. It was a great visit, though. Very good. And got many photos and great memories of it. It was fantastic. We've mentioned Bayesley inevitably quite a few times in different podcasts because it, it always tends to come up. And we've said, you know, a, a lot of the owners, wherever we go across the country, will ask us, you know, have you been to Bayesley? And, and we're planning to do a, a podcast episode just entirely on Basie because I think, you know, it definitely deserves that. But to, to have had that experience, you know, um, and we've heard, you know, s stories of people going in and maybe having not such a, a friendly and welcoming experience in Basie. So I think you, you really lucked out there, Mike. So um, should we move on? People are asking about, you know, if you wanted to get into Japanese jazz, like what, where would be a good place to start if, if you want, if you really had no clue what you were looking for or, or who to listen to, what would be a nice uh, entry point? Have you got any suggestions? 
Yeah, listen to uh, by um, J Jazz Volume One and J Jazz Volume <laughs> Two. Okay. Like, yep. like, and then let's imagine we're going beyond that. Let's say that's level one. Where, where do you, we go? You walked level? right into that one. For <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like it was a rehearsed uh, yeah. uh, um, <laughs> for the album, but it wasn't. Just to be clear. Um, yeah. What, what else? Any any other names uh, of of artists and things like that? Perhaps. I think you can't go wrong with Hino, Teramasa Hino, Masabumi Kikuchi, Sadao Watanabe, the earlier stuff, probably not the latest stuff so much. Um, all that stuff is pretty cheap heat. It doesn't cost you a fortune. It's all worth a listen. And to be honest, there's a great deal of stuff that's still very affordable that um, is out there on the ground, you know, right for picking discogs, places like that. Um, of course, you've got the Bible books, uh, Agawa San's uh, Japanese jazz book, which is an essential, which is one of my uh, big helps over the years. Um, Discogs, as I say, is always good as well. But yeah, I think, you know, start at the top and work your way down. You, um, I think Tony and I discussed this, you know, you look at the albums, you look at who the leader is, and you listen to the different aspects, and from those spin off to the side men who've invariably recorded as well their own albums and that's how i've done it sort of over the years kind of filtered them out through that three blind mice you can't go wrong with everything on there is audio file stream very very good label um union jazz um uh, i mean you've gone endlessly i think the because of the internet the whole thing you, you can find so much stuff on youtube now um i i, I looked at um uh, james your uh, podcast um not podcast yeah podcast the um the, the international jazz day mix which is really good there's a few tunes on that i didn't know and uh, with a bit of um detective work i managed to track the whole lot down and so there's more on the wants list now so i think with the internet it just makes things so much easier you can sample so much stuff as well before you buy yeah i would i would say i mean mike makes a very good point i mean um <clears throat> There are certain key labels that you can get more of more readily available. Certainly TBN, Three Blind Mice would be preeminent amongst those. Um, and he's right about uh, looking at the lead players on albums and then seeing who plays drums or bass or keys on these albums, because that's really a that's how you learn about about the music. The same with any, whether whether you're into American or European jazz or any any kind of music, I suppose. <clears throat> and I and I've you get a feel for uh, also, particular musician or style, or, or, or and and you follow that route, you know. So whether you're into real hardcore, fast kind of dance floor fusion, or free stuff, or more funky stuff, or deep spiritual mode, mo it's all there, and you can just follow through. And some musicians span the entire lot. Yeah. Right? Some of the best ones have done all those styles. They've gone from real mainstream stuff right through fusion, funk, everything. The more I think about that, actually, you don't get that so much in America, actually, so much. I mean, my experience of Japanese musicians is that they've had to be incredibly flexible in their playing for a whole host of historical reasons. You know, they, they've not generally fixed to one very strict style. Um, probably that's a hundred percent true. Yeah, that is a hundred percent true because of just the nature of the way the scene was here. Um, being that, you know, in order to, I mean, it's, it's a much smaller country. People are really, you know, they're really hustling for gigs. So you had to be able to play in pretty much almost any scenario 
Whereas in a yeah. country like the States, I mean, you, you know, you could carve out your niche in, in whether you were playing fusion or you were playing really, you know, heavily improv stuff. Um, so, yeah, you're definitely right. I've noticed that talking with Japanese musicians. They'll talk about how they have, you know, when they first started out in their careers, they had to go and pretty much be all-rounders, you know. Um, and you can see that with the records. Um, the records themselves, uh, when you guys... Now, uh, I was talking to our mutual friend uh, here in Japan today, Ian, who's also a collector like you guys. Um, and we've always had a running joke about the, the Obi. Um, now, for, for listeners who are not familiar or people who are not familiar uh, with Japanese culture, and, and Obi is, is, is the, the long wraparound belt that women wear on their kimonos. Okay, and it's a very, very long piece of fabric that can be tied in a very special way. And it's, it's very prestigious in some circumstances. Now, Japanese record albums uh, have an obi in a way <laughs> on the left side. Um, I personally, uh, I've never cared one way or the other. I just want to get the record. I don't even care if it's on eight track or cassette. <laughs> but uh, for collectors like yourselves, um, having an obi versus not having an obi is a very, very big difference, um, especially in price. So can you tell us a little bit about that? I'll let Mike answer that one first and I'll follow Mike. <laughs> yeah, I think it's the collectability of it. Um, it's like you can buy a reissue for one price, but you can buy an original for a full price. So if you're going to buy the original, you really want the original with an Obi when it comes to Japanese stuff. Um, so it's all about the collectability and it is a bit of a nerd thing as well, a bit of an OCD thing, you know. I just I've had a copy of uh, Bull Trout for years, and I and I've just sold it because I actually spent rather a lot of money and bought one just for the Obi strip. So I mean, it's quite sad, really. And Tony, or it's very surprising that you have a girlfriend, and uh, so he knows about Obi strips now, and she really loves my music. I think. Think, uh, but anyway, yeah, the Obi strip is is quite an integral part of it, and as as, as you rightly say, James. It, it, it doesn't it doesn't make any music but as a collector it's quite important i mean if it comes to it i'll i'll buy the record without it but you'd always be looking to try and get one with i think that's probably fair. Well, i've always just i've always just wondered because you know before i learned to speak and read japanese um you know if i was buying a record with the obi on it I mean, it could have been a completely different record that they just put it on. I would have had no way of knowing because it couldn't be <laughs> language, you know. I'm hoping that that's never been something you've experienced. But, um, yeah, certainly the price would be, would be a very, very big difference. Um, but have you guys noticed that like, when you've been here in Japan, um, I wanted to just get a quick comment on that about the, the price of records here versus what they're dealt with overseas, whether it's in Europe or the States. Like, what sort of range are you seeing for rare, rare Japanese jazz records? I think uh, 10 years ago, you could, the stuff I was buying then is doubled, tripled, quadrupled in price, uh, especially the rarer stuff. Going back to Bull Track, um, used to be about, I don't know, £100 album. I've seen them go for £400, £500 now with an OB. Um, so, yeah, I think Japan in the last few years, the prices have caught up to the worldwide demand, which I think unfortunately inadvertently Tony and I caused with uh, along with the Jazzman compilation when we've done the the J Jazz comps. It, it people become aware of it. They weren't aware of it before, so they go they start looking and they think, oh yeah, I'd like a copy of that. And and so the demand starts to to mount. I think another one was uh, Takeo Moriyama East Plants. 
that was a very cheap beat album years ago and that's sort of probably gone up in price maybe seven or eight times now um so yeah the the, the days the, the golden fields of japanese vinyl as they were are still very full and fertile but the prices have gone up accordingly um over the last couple of years there's no two ways about it last time i was there i saw some absolute eye-watering prices and i really would not like to be start collecting this sort of stuff now it's very expensive if you want to check out those prices you, you can find those on on mike's instagram i remember uh, looking through some of them as he was posting up from his last trip and thinking could I justify paying that for a record? Um, the jury's the jury's still out on that one. Luckily, for, for the more for the more socially competent uh, of us who don't necessarily need the original with with the OB. Um, luckily, uh, thanks to Mike and Tony and the guys at BBE, they've not only the volume one and two of the J Jazz compilations, but they've also released this fantastic J Jazz Masterclass uh, series, which I think is up to six now, where they're reissuing these classic Japanese uh, records with uh, a new OB. Uh, beautiful production, beautiful package, really nicely put together. So again, if it's something that you want to try and get into uh, and uh, if you're sort of listening and thinking, well, where do I start? I think that would also be uh, a really great place to start. And uh, you can sit there as you listen and, you know, play with your OB uh, to your heart's content. So uh, Tony uh, and Mike, I think the first, if I'm not mistaken, the first BB release um, of the J Jazz Masterclass that I mentioned after the first two volumes of the J Jazz compilations was was Tachibana. Yeah, yeah, it was um, what a Toro Azawa quartet, and it was. Um, I mean, it's a fascinating record, not just musically, but also the whole backstory of how it was created and how it came to be rediscovered in, in, in some regards. I mean, I I first came across it. It was just uh, listed in a book. Um, and so I knew it for several years just as a, as, a, as a small thumbnail picture. And I thought, wow, what is this record? You know, it, it just looked very intriguing and enigmatic. And there was nothing about it on the internet. You couldn't find a clip of it anywhere at all. And obviously that piques your interest more. And it, the less you can find out about a record, the more you, <laughs> the kind of more you want it, you know. So over the over the years you keep searching for it you never find it <clears throat> and then one day one came up on ebay and i sort of uh, i bid for it and i won it basically and um if my partner's listening it was very cheap anyway. yeah and I, and I managed to elevate the price even more because neither of us realized we were both bidding on it <laughs> exactly we were bidding against each other ridiculous yeah. anyway so um I, I, I got a copy of it, and I and I just didn't know what what to expect. I didn't know if it, if it was going to be one of those albums that are spoken about in hushed tones, but are actually rubbish. There's lots of those. Um, so when I got it, I put it on the turntable, and I was like, "Oh my lord, wow!" It was absolutely amazing. And um, I played it, as, and I rang Mike straight away. <laughs> I said, Mike, you've got to hear this record. It's absolutely incredible. So straight away, I knew I had something very special. And <clears throat> we decided that we wanted the track of it on the compilation. At that point, we never actually considered about reissuing the whole album. We were just about getting a track from the compilation. And we gave the information, what we had, to our man in Japan, um, Ken Hidaka, uh, Kensuke Hidaka, and he managed to track down 
uh, Toroazawa, who is a doctor in Japan, contacted him and said, you've got some guys in Britain who want to, you know, um, uh, put your music out. And he was amazed. He couldn't believe it. Anyone knew, knew about it. And on the back of that, we, we decided we could probably reissue the whole album, actually. And he agreed to that. And that's what we did. And it was the first album in the, in the J Jazz Masterclass series. And I think a very fitting beginning because it was such a pure, rare record made by four students on a private label, one off. They never recorded again. And it seemed in many ways to be emblematic of, of the project we were trying to do, which was to present fantastic music that few people had heard to the world, really. Um, and that certainly was incredibly obscure and I think set the bar very high, which I hope we've maintained since. And there's a certain sort of myths and things around the album, which um, we'll maybe get into uh, in a later episode, possibly next week. But Mike, um, I noticed from social media that you actually, you're, little profile icon is, is the album cover. Um, presumably you got over your disappointment at losing to Tony and eBay, did you? I bought it shortly afterwards from Magawa-san. Uh, and as my girlfriend stood behind me, a very reasonable price as well, may I add. <laughs> <laughs> the price of a small family car. For people who are listening, for people who are listening, we should just clarify, when, when we started recording here, Mike, uh, did tell us that he was in the toilet recording, and now we're all wondering why his girlfriend's standing behind him in the toilet. But he <laughs> needs help. Luckily, luckily, <laughs> luckily, it's just a podcast, and we've got no visuals on that. But um, yeah, I mean, what, what are your feelings about that album, Mike? That's oh, fantastic. Yeah, as Tony said it's. it's it, I knew about it as, as Tony did a long time ago, and couldn't find anything about it at all. I, I, I'd seen it um, in a disc union catalogue or something like that. Um, I knew it was a private press thing. Um, when I finally got it, 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 it was quite—it's quite a devastating album. It's incredibly powerful. Uh, the story that goes with it is really, really good as well. So, yeah, it was a real um, coup to get that one out. It's, and, and as Tony said, it, it's, it certainly was a, a great start because it's such a, a kind of bit of a white whale. You know, people don't know if it actually exists or not. I think, as I understand it, I was talking to a record dealer and he said to me that um, they pressed, from what I understand, they were pressed, as a, I think well, you'll go on to that, but when, they, when the, they went out to a certain number of people and then the ones that didn't get used were pulled back in and pulped. And that's why there's so very, very few of them. And I think that goes for a lot of, the 70s stuff, it was done on a sale or return basis as it went into the shop. So things like um, Kazuki Ichihara's Departure, same thing again, um, sold very few copies because it was so progressive and so adventurous. Sale or return, came back in and they just pulped them. And that's why there's so few that they, they weren't remained at all cut out or anything like that. So yeah, wow. a very, very rare album, a great one to start with. Well, it's, it's amazing that you guys were able to, to, to track them down so close to each other. I mean, I know, I know some collectors here, Japanese collectors, who spent a couple years, uh, maybe even you know, upwards of four or five years, looking for this album and paid a lot for it when they finally were able to get it. And, and it's just it's quite remarkable that you, know, you, you two guys were able to source that from, from the UK and then put it out 
as the first reissue of the of the Masterclass series. I mean, it was just amazing. I mean, I wasn't aware of the album, and it was it was Tony that that kind of told me some of the the stories and the legends around this album, and. I mean, happily, when James and I did our most recent uh, sort of cross-country trip to photograph um, some of the jazz joints in, in various regions, um, we, we had a sort of a fond farewell at, uh, was it Nagoya Station, I think? And uh, James headed back up to Yokohama, and I headed over to the other side of Japan, where, uh, thanks to Tony and, and putting me in touch with someone, I'd managed to, to get an email for uh, Toru Aizawa or Dr. Aizawa as he's now known, who's still working as a doctor in a hospital. And so um, excitingly for me, I, I was able to meet him. Um, uh, he uh, booked a sort of a private room in a Japanese restaurant uh, in the town that he lived in. Uh, and again, luckily I was able to record an interview. And so we do get to the bottom a little bit uh, of to, to some of the, the bottom of some of those myths around the album in terms of how many copies actually exist of the original one um, and uh, various other things about that. So um, hopefully uh, in the meantime, you'll head over to BBE Records and get yourself a copy of, Tachi, uh, copy of Tachibana to, to prepare for that episode. Um, listen, guys, we're probably going to wrap things up um, there. And um, a massive thank you uh, to both Mike Peden and Tony Higgins for given up their time today to, to chat with us on the podcast. If there are any sort of sound issues that you're having, um, we apologize for that. Obviously, we're, we're sort of working on the hoof here with the lockdown. We're using Zoom, and, you know, I've now got balcony bingo um, in the background at the flats behind my house as well. So we're, we're, we're battling on all fronts. James, I'm, qu I'm quite uh, intrigued to hear about Balcony Bingo, actually. Might have to do a separate <laughs> episode. I have no idea what that could be. but um, Well, if yeah. we do another one, we'll, I'll get you a card and we can sort of do a, a play along as, as yeah. we chat. Uh, but uh, definitely, definitely like to echo those sentiments. I mean, um, you know, we're all locked down in our various countries and uh, nothing finer on a Saturday evening than... Uh, talking some uh, music nerd talk, man. Uh, you know, this is, is about as good as it can get right now. So thanks again, Tony and Mike. And um, definitely one day the four of us are going to sit down in a jazz kisaten here in Japan and, and, and really hash it out over some drinks. I look forward to it. Absolutely. It's one otaku to another. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks, guys. Um, if um, you're online, obviously, uh, please head over to www.tokyojazzjoints.com. Have a look at some of the photos. Uh, of the places we've chatted about today. You can get us on all the usual social media platforms at Tokyo Jazz Joints. Uh, Mike and Tony, pretty easy to track down on social media as well if you've got any uh, sort of super nerd questions about Japanese jazz for them. You can find James at Mr. OK Jazz uh, Tokyo and also you can check out his podcast as well. See, James, now you've got me plugging your show as well. What's that all about? Hey, man, you know, the American capitalist ethic, it just spreads like a germ, man. You know, come on. <laughs> Gotta embrace it. Embrace it, man. And on that note, uh, thanks for this week. And James, I'll talk to you next week. Take care, gents. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Easy. Bye-bye.